Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. And that means in a world that wants to come against us, in a world that kills Christians for their faith in Jesus, that we can still move forward with confidence. We've been seeing that in the book of Acts, chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. We considered that a couple of weeks ago, and now we're going to break back into that story, beginning in verse 18 of Acts, chapter 12. So if you could make your way there, uh, I would be grateful. I want to talk to you this morning on the subject of the wannabe king and the king of kings. The wannabe king and the king of kings. I... I Has anybody ever been a wannabe? Uh, I wanted to be uh, the best athlete on our track team, and I was not. Uh, I was a wannabe. The world is is filled with wannabe kings. It's filled with little antichrists, those who want to attack King Jesus. And we see that in Herod. So as you're making your way to Acts chapter 12, I want to remind you sort of where we step into this story. Herod is attempting to destroy the church in Jerusalem by targeting its leadership. He has executed James the apostle, and he's planning to execute Peter, the leading apostle, at the conclusion of the Passover season. But the the church is praying, and On the very night before Peter is to be delivered to death, an angel of the Lord rescues Peter. Peter shows up at the house of some believers who are praying, and they're they're in near disbelief that that God had answered their prayer by rescuing Peter. I want to encourage you to pray prayers that would astound you if God answered them. So in the church, it seems like everything is great. And then in verse 17, Peter throws the church, and he throws us a bit of a curveball. He didn't die, but he was going to depart the church at Jerusalem anyway. His exit might seem like a small detail, but it's actually massive. God is showing us that the true church of God is going to endure and prevail not by a centralization of man-centered authority in Jerusalem or later in Rome, but rather through local churches being faithful to God's word and the gospel message in every location around the world where the gospel is heard and people repent of sin and believe on Christ and they agree as we have done, members of North Roanoke, to come together as a church that is under and guided by what? The word of God. What marks a church for success is faithfulness to God's word because God's word endures. God ensures that his word prevails. And what we find in this text is that those who oppose the gospel's advance will be judged. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord beginning in verse 18 of Acts chapter 12? Now when day came, There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. 
And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus. Parenthetically, that's just a great name, Blastus. Having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, that they had asked, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Would you pray with me? God, help us uh, to internalize, to process, to digest this text this morning. God, make us who uh, we are in Christ. God, take our flesh and crucify it and take the Spirit of God within us. God, I pray you would, you would move, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit-authored Word, that you would compel those of us who are indwelled with the Spirit to, to pursue Christ more wholeheartedly, more courageously. And God, for those who don't know that, that King Jesus has conquered death for them, that, that God today, maybe today would be the day of salvation. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Herod, in this text, we see a personification of the world's opposition to the reign of Christ and the spread of Christ's fame through the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel declares the glory of King Jesus. When we declare the gospel, we're telling about the glory of a God who came down on a rescue mission. But we live in a world that opposes the gospel mission. Why? Because the world is infected with a sinful desire to possess the glory that belongs to Christ alone for themselves. In the actions of Herod, in the aftermath of Peter's escape from prison, we get a picture of what the world is really like. So I want to break down the world system, worldly powers this morning by looking at Herod's life. The first thing that I want to show you in verses 18 and the first half of 19 is that worldly powers see people as expendable in the pursuit of their own glory. Worldly powers see people as expendable in the pursuit of their own glory. In verse 18, the soldiers who had been responsible for guarding Peter are alarmed to discover that he is gone. And they have every reason to be alarmed, right? Because losing your prisoner is not a good idea in Greco-Roman culture because you yourself are going to be subject to the death penalty. In verse 19, after Herod conducts an unsuccessful search for Peter, he delivers these soldiers up to be executed. But we've got to understand, these men had not been negligent in their work. God had overruled. God is the one who set Peter free and who supernaturally put them to sleep, keeping them asleep for uh, the duration of Peter's escape from prison. And he does this for the sake of Peter and the sake of his people. And we've got to understand 
We, we don't need to be participating in a world system that is fighting against actively and directly, directly the people of God. We have no reason to doubt the professionalism and the commitment of these soldiers to one another or to their profession. But they are working for a man who is actively seeking to undermine the gospel and exterminate the church. So that puts these soldiers, whether they realize it or not, on the same team as a man who's fighting against the king of the universe. And so when they're delivered up to death by King Herod and they meet Jesus in judgment, they meet God in judgment, guess what their defense would be? We were just doing our jobs. And I'm here to tell you, folks, there's a lot of everyday Joes and Josephinas out there that they're just doing their jobs. But they're trapped in a world system that is craving its own glory. And they're being used like tools by the world in a system that's going to leave them eternally disappointed. We are the people of God that need to be speaking to the people who think they're just doing their jobs. You need to live and breathe for the glory of one far greater than this world system of which we are a part. We need that to be a warning to us. We need to pay attention to our work. We need to pay attention to where we work, what is being asked of us by our employers and the systems in which we participate, lest we become like these soldiers and end up fighting against King Jesus and our own people and his mission. Because Herod can't beat God, he decides to play God with the lives of these soldiers. As believers in this world that wants to assault and undermine the church, I want to remind us that we have a much better ruler than Herod. We have a king who doesn't enlist us to abuse us. He enlists us in the greatest mission ever, and he never leaves nor forsakes us. He promised to always be with us. We do not have a wannabe king. We serve the king of kings. We have a king who had all the glory of God from eternity past, and yet he came down to rescue us. He did not prop himself up by killing other people he laid down his life on the cross so that he might raise other people up we have no need if we've been rescued by this king to seek our own glory or the or to put others down in a quest for our own glory. For we have beheld the glory of Christ in the hearing of the gospel. The glory of a king who became like nothing. So that we could have a share in God who is everything. Worldly powers see people as expendable. But those who have encountered the king of kings love and serve others. Because they've been so lavishly served by Christ. The second thing we sing about, see about worldly powers comes in the second half of verse 19 into verse 22 and it is this worldly powers withhold blessings from people until those people offer them the worship or the recognition or the attention that they desire does that make sense worldly powers withhold blessings from others until those people give them what they want when you give me what i want then i might give you what you want this is how the world works. In verse 19, at the end of verse 19, Herod possibly licking his wounds from losing Peter as a prisoner 
heads out to Caesarea. Now we know from the works of a man named Josephus, a a Jewish historian of that day, that Herod visited Caesarea to celebrate certain celebrations and spectacles in honor of Caesar of Rome. But Herod's real mission is not to honor Caesar, but to honor himself. We aren't told why, but Herod was in a persistent state, verse 20, of extreme anger. This is the only time this word occurs in the New Testament. He's really mad at the people of Tyre and Sidon. He's so angry that he's cutting off their food supply. A commentator by the name of Peterson summarizes the situation this way. Tyre and Sidon were free, self-governing cities on the coast of Phoenicia. Herod had been quarreling with them for unspecified reasons. So serious was the situation that their leaders joined together and sought an audience with him. In their approach to Herod, they wisely secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. Don't, Don't miss what's going on here. There are people in need of their daily bread, and they're seeking peace with the one who can give it to them. With one accord, they go to this king looking for peace. But we, as the people of God, with one accord, go to our king because he's already done everything necessary for us to have peace. In verse 21, they assemble to celebrate Herod in the hopes that he will save them. Maybe if we prop up his ego, he will give us some bread. Here in Caesarea, we're... Caesar is the one who legitimately holds power. Herod puts on a proud display of his own perceived sense of importance using a throne that isn't his own. He sits on Caesar's throne to prop up his own self. This is a picture of worldly powers at work, church. They set themselves up. The world system sets itself up as an authority to be glorified in places where they lack jurisdiction. God has given us, He has ordained governments for a purpose. They have a lane. They have a sphere of influence and they're supposed to stay in that lane. They are to do their God-given purposes and no more. No government has jurisdiction over the gospel of Jesus Christ. No government has jurisdiction over the consciences of those who hear the gospel, repent and believe on Christ, and then are duty-bound to follow Him no matter what their government says. This on this morning. Are y'all watching the news and paying attention to what's happening in our country? Do you feel the squeeze that they're trying to put on believers? There's no place on earth where Jesus lacks jurisdiction. Nowhere. But worldly powers are seldom content to stay in their God-ordained lane. They want a glory that is not their own. And they will, like Herod, even endeavor to control the food supply and withhold bread to get it. As Christians, we not only recognize this manipulative tendency in the world... If we're honest, we recognize it in ourselves. Many marriages are struggling 
because they aren't operating based upon godly wisdom, but upon worldly wisdom. I won't bless and honor my husband because he didn't do this. I won't do this for my wife until she does this. I won't love and nurture my wife and help with the kids until she does why. It happens in work relationships. I won't bless my coworker or pay a compliment where it is due because my contributions have gone unnoticed. Or if I compliment them, people might grab onto that and suddenly they might be promoted beyond me. This tendency is in our flesh. And only by way of the Spirit grabbing more ground in our lives can we really live for the glory of Christ. Only by way of the Spirit's help can we get Herod out of our own hearts. It is in remembering and rehearsing and delighting in the incredible message of the gospel. What is that message? The message that the king of the universe came down and gave us himself that we might behold his glory. It is in living in light of that message that we are freed from playing the world's games and manipulating others to try and grab glory for ourselves because we've already beheld the one whose glory cannot be matched. Those who want to do away with the gospel act contrary to the selflessness of the gospel. Let me say that again. Those who want to do away with the gospel act contrary to the selflessness of the gospel. Jesus is self-giving. He's self-emptying. He pours himself up, out, so that others might be lifted up. But those who act contrary to the gospel will not defeat the gospel. That's the hope of the Christian. In verse 21, now that Herod has his captive audience he puts on his royal robes he sits on the throne and he begins to give a speech and in verse 22 don't miss this in verse 22 the people give Herod exactly what he wants they shout out the voice of God and not a man Herod wants a world in which he is revered as God Herod wants a world in which he has godlike authority And he will do whatever is needed, even if it means harming his own economy, to deny bread to others, to receive the glory that he desires. In short, Herod is a type of Antichrist. Herod withholds bread from needy people to extort a glory that is not legitimately his own, while Jesus, the true king of kings, concealed his glory by becoming a man so that he could freely offer himself on the cross to needy sinners as the bread of life. Do you see the contrast? One who withholds bread so that he can get glory, one who has all glory and he gives it up, So that, or he conceals it by becoming a man, so that we can have him as the bread of life. He sustains our souls. He reveals to us real glory, glory beyond all compare. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. It's a glory that we could never attain. It's a glory that we could never have. It's a glory that our sin disqualified us from beholding, and yet he came low in grace so that we can know him in glory. What a Savior. When this reality, when that song grabs your heart, that's when it begins to change you. 
That's when it begins to impact your marriage. That's when it begins to impact how you are a supervisor or a uh, supervised person in the workplace. It's that which makes you ambitious, but in a new sort of way. It's not wrong to have ambition. The gospel does not make us unambitious. It gives us new ambitions. It gives us proper ambitions. It makes us ambitious in a new sort of way. We, we now desire not to prop ourselves up, but we're ambitious to lay our lives down so that Christ who laid his life down for us might be magnified and proclaimed and encountered and worshipped in all the earth. But we live in a world where this sort of thinking, this gospel wisdom is counterintuitive. We live in a world where people are consumed with an idolatrous quest for their own glory. And we need to understand there are consequences for seeking our own glory. We need to understand what's at stake between the world's view of the good life and the gospel's view of the good life. Everything's at stake. It is not just a choice between two ways of seeing the world. Well, there's the anti-gospel way and the gospel way, and it doesn't really matter. You have your truth, and I'll have my truth, and we'll all just be happy. No, it is a choice between life everlasting and death everlasting. We see that in verse 23, as Herod is swiftly judged by God. And what we learn from this text is that those who live to glorify themselves will be judged by the God of glory. Who are you living for this morning? In verse 23, is Herod's selfish and idolatrous quest for fame reaches a crescendo, God moves swiftly in judgment. I want you to notice Herod's life. There's been no sign that he's going to face the judgment of God. Everything's been good. He's been on a throne. He comes out in a, in a king's robe. Josephus tells us that it was made of sterling silver and it was glimmering in the morning sunlight. This guy's got it all. He's doing whatever he wants to do. Everything seems great. And in a moment, God strikes him dead. In the moment that he gets what he thinks he wants, he gets eternity separated from the God of glory. Be careful. Be careful if you're getting everything you want out of this life. Because you might open your mouth to take that first breath in eternity. And find you're missing out on knowing the God of life in the life to come. God moves swiftly in judgment. Along the way, there were signs that Herod was on the wrong path, weren't there? I mean, Peter somehow gets out of prison with 16 guards. And rather than being checked up in his spirit, rather than saying, maybe I should stop fighting the church, maybe God really is with those people, maybe I should check this out. He doubles down on the glory of Herod, opposing God, his gospel, and his people. Herod refused to be humbled. 
He doubled down on Herod being hailed as a hero no matter who he had to hurt in the process. And in the very moment, in the very moment, do you see it? Verse 23, immediately, in the very moment, Herod thinks he has gained what he wanted so desperately, an angel of the Lord, maybe the same angel who struck Peter to wake him up and set him free from prison, now strikes Herod dead, leading him instantly to a Christless eternity. The destiny of his condemned soul is graphically portrayed by the worm's consumption of his rotting corpse. You say, well, that's pretty nasty, Pastor. It's what the Bible says. And if you think that's bad, it's nothing compared to the eternity that he stepped into. It is nothing. (sighs) Y'all, hell exists. God's word is clear. Physical death leads to God's judgment, period. There's no purgatory. There's no second chances. There's no do-overs. Hebrews 9.27 says it this way. It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. The idea of everlasting punishment is not popular today. If you want people to scatter when you go into Starbucks, be like, hey, I've been, been reading up on hell. Anybody want to talk? <laughs> Ghost town. It's not popular. But we're not trying to win a popularity contest, church. And it is thoroughly biblical. In Daniel 12, chapter 2, the prophet speaks of the return of Christ and he says this, Those who sleep in the dust of the earth, that's dead people, shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You say, well, yeah, that's the Old Testament. You know, what did they know? Well, does Jesus know anything about the afterlife? Did you know that during his earthly ministry, Jesus says more about the sorrows of hell than he does about the joys of heaven. Demarest summarizes teaching in this way. Jesus is teaching on hell in this way. Listen closely. The Lord taught, meaning the Lord Jesus. The Lord taught that the unrepentant or the unsaved, the lost, those who die without faith in Christ, that they would be consigned to Gehenna, the place of end times, punishment. Jesus affirmed that hell is a place of conscious torment and everlasting and of everlasting duration. Jesus in Matthew 25:46 clearly confirms that the damned shall live in hell as long as God himself will live in heaven. How long is God going to live in heaven? Forever. The compassionate, you say, Jesus is full of loving kindness and and compassion and grace and mercy. And he is to deliver you from the horrors of hell. The compassionate Lord candidly described hell as a place of darkness, as a fiery furnace, and as a place where the worm never dies. 
Yes, these worms here in verse 23 would eventually finish the job with Herod's body. But all who die seeking their own glory rather than beholding and living for the glory of King Jesus will one day be raised and judged and then face the second death in the lake of fire, which will be a state of conscious exclusion from the favorable, loving and, favorable and loving presence of God forever. This is Herod's fate. It is the fate of a world that is set against Christ and his people. Luke is reminding us that those who act contrary to the gospel to prop themselves up, though it might look like they're winning for a long time, they will fail. It is the gospel that wins. It is Jesus who wins. It is the church who wins. Look at verse 24 and 25. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Do you see how Luke keeps identifying the church and the word together? As the word spreads and the gospel is received, people are brought into the kingdom. And what kind of people are they? They are word people. They are gospel people. The gospel isn't just something outside of them that they believe out there. It's something that comes inside of them and feeds the Holy Spirit and changes them and makes them new and gives them new desires and ambitions and affections. They are gospel people. And in that way, the the word multiplied and increased. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. In closing, I want to tell you this last point. The gospel will prevail, and God's people will keep serving one another until our king returns. The gospel wins. The word endures forever. Those who are changed by the gospel will stand in the last day. Once again, Luke gives us an optimistic summary statement in verse 24. The gospel increased and multiplied, meaning more people believed on Christ and became a part of God's family. The the gospel kept reaching new people. Peterson says this, once again, gospel growth means church growth. This, this This ruler, Herod, who tried to stop the spread of the gospel by withholding bread, could not do it. He could not stop the message of the true king of glory who came down and offered himself to us as the bread of life. Herod died and the gospel spread. The wannabe king is dead and the king of kings is still on the move as believers share the gospel and selflessly serve one another. Don't miss verse 25. Herod is trying to consume service for himself. He wants everybody else to serve him. But then we get these believers in verse 25. What are they doing? They're completing their service in Jerusalem. They're serving the church. They're serving other people in Jesus' name. They're serving the king who served them by serving others. Now, why are they in Jerusalem serving? Don't miss this. This is good stuff. I love the Bible. I mean... It's, it's incredible. Herod is trying to get glory by denying bread to people. And here you've got the people of God. Do you remember why they've left Antioch and come back to Jerusalem? They've collected an offering because what's coming? A famine is on the way. And God has equipped his people 
the one who has given his son as the bread of life, he's equipped them with foreknowledge of the famine that's on the way to be ready to provide bread for people who are going to go hungry without it. They're not there for their own glory. They're there serving for the glory of their king and the good of his people. They had been rescued by a king who had served them, and so now they delight to serve others so that Christ might be known and magnified. So in closing, I want to ask us a few questions and then invite you to respond this morning. Whose glory is motivating you? Truly? Whose glory is compelling your life? What does your praying say about whose glory you seek? Are your prayers all about you? Or are they about the advance of the gospel and the good of the church and the depth of your relationship with Christ and the wholeness of your marriage and of other marriages? What is your giving? say about what is motivating you? What do your dreams say about what is motivating you? What about your planning and your living and your thinking? And how about this, just your decision making? How do you make decisions? Do you make decisions based on what will bring maximal glory to the king of the universe who laid his life down to save you? Have you discovered the joy of emptying yourself for the sake of the king who poured his life out for you? Have you discovered the joy of offering yourself to Jesus in service to others? Your children, your spouse, your parents, this church family, your co-workers? Or or do you have a consumer mentality in which the church is just another world in which you try to go and be your own little God for a little while? Church, we know the gospel wins in the end. But I have a question that I want us to ask of ourselves this morning. Is the gospel winning you right now? Is the gospel overtaking your life? I I don't know the answers to these questions. I don't know if you're more focused on your retirement or the reign of Christ. I don't know when you walk in those doors if you're more interested in your favorite program or in the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I don't know if you're more interested in a new toy or in people receiving new life in Christ. I don't know in the workplace if you're there just for the next promotion or there to promote the king of kings. But God knows the answers to those things. And he is the judge. And I have good news As long as you have life and breath, he still saves. And his gospel still prevails. If you don't know this king, my prayer is that the gospel would prevail upon you today. That you would repent of your sin, be saved, and live for the glory of Christ. And if you do know this king, and if you do love this king, and if the spirit has searched you and found areas of your heart that don't line up with the pursuit of the glory of Christ, that he would give you the liberty in this moment when we stand and sing to lay it down at the altar and leave this room with a refreshed and renewed heart that is ready to pursue the glory of Christ no matter what. Would you pray with me?
God in heaven, we don't want to be pretenders. We don't want to be fakers. We want to be genuinely motivated and compelled by the gospel, by the glimpse of the glory of Christ that we have beheld in the hearing of the gospel. God, there's a lot going on in our church family. There's a lot going on in the lives represented before me. And there are many ways that we can be distracted. But God, I pray in this moment, as we rise to sing in a moment, that you would just captivate us afresh with the the goodness of God in Christ. That you would give us a glimpse of the glory of God in the gospel. That God, who has everything, came down to give up his life so that we could have a share in it. And God, we pray by way of your spirit that would move us and compel us and lead us to be a contagious Jesus people until he returns. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.